0: Because you think it does not make it true. Just because you think it does not make it true. Our daughter Emily was 16. She had just gotten her driver's license. And as the elder child in our home with her new driver's license, she was able to help Julie and me out running some errands, picking things up, that kind of thing. And on this particular day she was doing us a favor by dropping Joe and a couple of his buddies off at football practice and on her way out of the school parking lot as she was pulling back into traffic she had a fender bender the ink was barely dry on her driver's license and she called me and I could tell she was she was upset but she was holding it all together and so I said well listen I'll I'll be right there and by the time I got there, I have to tell you, Emily handled herself really, really well. She had already exchanged information, insurance information, with the other driver. She got to deal with the sheriff who was on the scene and showed up, a really big, imposing guy. At one point, he said to her, he goes, boy, and your parents are going to be really upset when their insurance rates go up. And she said, <laughs> you don't know my parents. I'm paying for this. And she was right, by the way. But I remember when I got there, we there was... Emily's front bumper was lying on the ground. Excuse me. I get emotional just telling this story. Her front bumper was lying on the ground because she had, as she pulled back into traffic, another car was going by the traffic, stopped and just smacked the bumper and just kind of knocked it right off the front of her car. And so... Once everything was taken care of, we picked up the pieces of her car, put them in the back seat, and went home, and when we got back to our house, Emily kind of made a beeline for her bedroom, and, and I knew that she was upset, and you know, she kind of held everything together, but the adrenaline finally just gave way, and she had, a, she had a moment or so, and I gave her about a good hour, hour and a half, and finally, I went in, and by the way, the, the accident was 100% her fault. That was not even a question mark. She did not get a ticket because the sheriff was very gracious, but I went in and I knocked on the door and I said, hey, how are you doing? She had kind of composed herself by then, and she said, I'm okay. She goes, but dad, I've been thinking, which is always scary when Emily says, dad, I've been thinking. And I said, okay, tell me what you've been thinking about. She said, listen, I know that legally it was my fault, but... When I pulled back onto the street, I had already established my lane when that car hit me. And for just a split second, I thought to myself, you know, she's got a point. That's a great point. And then I remembered this. Establishing your lane is not a thing. That doesn't even matter. And so I said, Emily, listen, I love you so much. And I, do, I want you to know, I think you handled yourself great with the other driver and the sheriff. And, and I'm so glad that nobody was injured. There are no problems in this. And you're going to be able to pay this off after about seven or eight years. Don't worry about it. But, sweetheart, let me tell you something. Establishing your lane is not a thing. It was entirely your fault. You pulled into oncoming traffic. And Emily learned a valuable lesson that day that just because you think it does not mean it's true. Our good buddy Andy Andrews likes to say, don't believe everything you think. Have you ever thought something and then found out after the fact that you were just dead wrong? Anybody ever been through that experience? You know what that feels like? We've all, I think, been there, particularly when our feelings are leading the way. And I think so many times we experience the same thing in a relationship with God, in our relationship with the family of God and the church. A lot of times we think things ought to be a certain way or God's going to do a certain thing. And then when it turns out to be completely different than what we expected, we're disappointed. We're hurt. Well, maybe even we get angry and we get mad. And because we thought it would be a certain way and it turned out a different way, we get so Frustrated so many times. One of the things that I love about Scripture in general and the book of Acts in particular is that God never pulls any punches in his word. As we're going to see today in the book of Acts as we continue this series Legacy, God is very, very direct in telling us what to expect, in telling us what to anticipate in a relationship with him, in our relationship with each other, and showing us the way through The book of Acts details the very beginnings of Jesus' church. That's why we've titled this teaching series Legacy. It is that, that thing that recalls our roots and directs our boots on the ground as the mobile, moving army of Christ in this world called out, consecrated to be his hands and his feet and his voice in a world that is literally dying for the life that is truly life, the life that Jesus offers that we carry into that darkness. And so it's imperative, I think, for us to understand that even though the early church, even though the current church may be graced by growth and marked by miracles, the fact of the matter is we're always going to have very real growing pains to navigate to understand that we get through this. And I think one of the things that we do as the church is we help each other to learn to expect those things so that when they come, we're not rocked, we're not completely shocked and and surprised by the presence of these growing pains, but instead we can use them to grow in our relationship with Christ, to grow in our strength as a family, and to move forward. Think about every relationship that you have that has withstood the test of time, every relationship that really matters, you've been through some stuff. You've been through some stuff that you decided to stay shoulder to shoulder with that other person or those other people. You've been through those things together and it's because of the stuff that you go through that largely determines the strength of the relationship. I think about the people over the years that stand the test of time in my life, in our church. The people that say, I'm here and I'm not going anywhere. I'm not doing anything different. I will weather it together. Those are the people I think that God shows us the most his grace and his strength and his power through. And as we pick up in Acts chapter four today, if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Acts chapter number four. Because the Bible recounts for us an incredibly important dynamic that I think is something for us to aspire to, but also shows us an example from this early church there in Jerusalem. I'm looking at Acts chapter four, I'm gonna start with verse 32 and then read verses 34 and 35. The Bible says that all the believers were united in heart and mind and they felt that what they owned was not their own so they shared everything they had. There were no needy people among them because those who owned land or houses would sell them and then bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. So again, there's this incredible sense of unity that extends even into how they shared their possessions with each other. There was this this willingness, this desire to to show the love of Christ to each other and to those who were outside of the faith. And and there's a a lot of people who are like, man, that's... That's an amazing group. I want to be a part of that. I want want to see what that looks like, what that feels like. And everything was firing on all cylinders until Acts chapter 5, verse 1. In Acts chapter 5, verse 1, look at what the Bible says. But, everybody say but. But. Not everybody said it, but we're going to keep moving. But there was a certain man named Ananias who with his wife sold some property. Now he brought part of the money to the apostles, claiming that it was the full amount. With his wife's consent, he kept the rest. Then Peter said, Ananias, why have you let Satan fill your heart? You lied to the Holy Spirit and you kept some of the money for yourself. The property was yours to sell as you wished. And after selling, the money was also yours to give away. How could you do such a thing? You weren't lying to us, but to God. As soon as Ananias heard these words, he fell to the floor and died. Everyone who heard about it was terrified. Have a good week. Thanks for coming this morning. I mean, like, God. I mean, that is that is salty. Like, like I, I read that and I'm like, whoa, that, that sounds like Luke copied some stuff out of the Old Testament and got it into the New Testament by mistake. We, we love the New Testament. We like, we like grace and forgiveness and joy and happiness and peppiness and bursting with loveness. What Ananias died? What in the world? Here's what we need to remember. The God of the New Testament is the same God as the Old Testament. He just chose to deal with, in new and fresh ways in the New Testament because of Christ. But his standards of holiness, his standards of justice remained constant. You see, what Ananias, and the Bible goes on to say that Sapphira, his wife, came in three hours later and the same thing happened to her. She just died. And there's this incredible realization that, The stakes of the church, what we are actually all about, is in fact a matter of life and death, not only physically, but spiritually. The reality that Ananias and Sapphira kind of looked at what was going on at this early church in Jerusalem and said, I want to play, I want to be on the bandwagon, but they weren't willing to fully, fully commit themselves but they wanted to act like it. They wanted to to play church, but they didn't wanna be the church. And and I think it's important for us to remember, because I I look at Ananias and Sapphira, and I think the tendency, and it's easy for us to go, whoa, what are you doing? Ananias, Sapphira, You, you can't tell people that you're bringing everything that you brought off of that sale and keep some of it for yourselves. But I get it. I, I I know what that feels like. Where you know what the right thing to do is, but man, it's going to be inconvenient. It's 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 going to cost something. Maybe not financially, maybe, but 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 personally, to stay connected, to stay committed, it is going to cost something. And and so sometimes that that human nature wins the fight, and and we. Act like we're all in, but really and truly we're not all in. And I think that's one of the things that a lot of people who are kicking the tires of the Christian and the Jesus thing, if you will, how many times have you heard people say, well, I'm, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. Or, I'm, not really, I'm not really into the church thing. I'm not into organized religion. And one of the primary reasons that they give They'll say over and over again, I've had people tell me this, is because of hypocrisy. Hypocrisy, the hypocrites in the church. And and listen, I'll raise my hand. I've I've been hypocritical. I've I've acted one way but felt another. I've done things. Because here's the thing. At the end of the day, we are very flawed and imperfect people committed to a flawless, perfect Lord and so, of course, we're going to fall short. Of course, we're going to miss the mark. That's going to happen. So if somebody ever says to you, I'm not really into the hypocrites in church, just smile and with kindness in your heart, tell them, that's okay. We got room for one more. We're all going to be hypocrites at some point. We're all going to fall short of what we're striving for. That's called being human. But when we mess up, we fess up. Just just own it. The the. Basically, one of the main things I taught our kids, Julie and I taught our kids when they were growing up, is just own your responsibility. Just say, I was wrong. I was wrong. I remember one time I was having a conversation with Emily, and it was a long conversation. She was probably fourth or fifth grade. And I mean, a long conversation. And finally, I just said, Emily, I I love you so much. And whatever you need to share with your therapist when you grow up, it will never be, Daddy didn't listen. So I love you, but this conversation is done. I just need you to say, I was wrong and I'm sorry. And she said through the tears with a straight face, Daddy, I know that I'm wrong, but I just can't convince myself. (laughs) I get that too. I understand that. I know I'm wrong, but man, it just is sometimes so painful to admit it. But just own it. Here's here's the principle that that Ananias and Sapphira show, show us. Don't let the faults of the followers distract you from the love of the leader. Don't let the faults of the followers distract you from the love of the leader, who is Jesus. If you're if you're thinking about Christianity, if you're investigating who is this Jesus, focus on him. I promise you, we're gonna do the best we can and we will mess up. We will will disappoint you, we will fall short because we are in process. We are in progress as works of the Holy Spirit of God. So don't let the faults of the followers distract you from the love of the leader. And so, the people in this early church in Jerusalem, they had to refocus. They they were terrified, the Bible says. Like, whoa! Okay, so that's what's at stake here. The Bible goes on in Acts 5, verse 16 through 20. It says that crowds came from the villages around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those possessed by evil spirits, and they were all healed. Now, the high priest and his officials, the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But an angel of the Lord came at night, opened the gates of the jail and brought them out. Then he told them, go to the temple and give the people this message of life. So they were arrested for their faith. Put in the public jail as an example. This is what happens if you try to upset the status quo religiously. But God wasn't done yet. God wasn't done, and so an angel of God released them into the middle of the night and said, Go and keep telling the story. Keep sharing the good news. And so they went right back to the spot where they had been when they were arrested, and they continued to tell the good news of Jesus. They continued to give the gospel that brings life to anyone who would receive it. And the next day, when the Sanhedrin convened and they gathered together to decide what to do, they said, Bring them here from the jail. And and the jailer went to to get them and was like, "Um, I, I don't know how to tell you this, but they're not in the jail. They're actually back in the temple doing the very thing they were arrested for. And in the original Greek, the Bible says they blew a gasket. They lost their minds. But look at what happened. Verses 40 and 41. They called in the apostles and had them flogged. You can take, that, take the rest of that down for just a second. I don't want to skate by that. Do you understand that they, they were whipped because of their obedience? They did what God told them to do and the skin from their back, the flesh of their back was torn off with whips that had... That had pieces of metal and glass sewn into them. I don't, I don't want to belabor this point melodramatically, but neither do I want to miss this point. When you understand what has been done down through the centuries for the furtherance of of God's church, when you understand the price that has been paid in terms of human flesh and lives, I think it's really helpful for us to put into perspective our lives, to put into perspective the call of God on our lives to be salt and light in this world? How many times do we shrink from a conversation or shrink from something with God kind of quickens our spirit or God says, hey, I want you to speak to that person. I want you to have a conversation. Like, whoa, I don't don't want them to think I'm weird. When I was in college, I worked at Shepler's Western Wear here in Austin. And I was working with, with a lot of different people from a lot of different walks of life. And there was one woman who walked, who worked in the department where I worked at the time, and this woman had raised profanity to an art form. She could cuss. The, I mean, she she could curse the paint off the walls, and, and and I wasn't being judgmental because I there was one time when I was twelve that I cursed, but so I knew that I knew those words existed, but. She kept using God's name in vain over and over and over again, just this, that—I mean, on and on and on. And I remember thinking, I, I need to. I, if she walked in the door and and cursed my mother, I would say something like, "You talking about my mama? We're gonna go." But because it was the Lord's name in vain, I kind of. And then I just started praying. I said, God. Show me how to say something. Show me when to say something at the right moment. And it was the next day, she was going on about something and this, that, and the other, and and she just kept throwing God's name out there in a way that it shouldn't be used. And I said, listen, I want to, can I tell you something real quick? I said, "I'm, I'm not mad, I'm not offended at all, but my relationship with God is the most important thing in the world to me. And if you walked in here and and cussed my mother, I would say something about it. So if you don't mind, I don't, you'd say anything you want to, but as as far as using God's name, if you don't mind just not using it in that way, that would mean the world to me. Thank you. And you can do with that whatever you want to. She was so awesome. She said, I'm so sorry. She goes, I know I shouldn't do that. My mom used to wash my mouth out with soap all the time, and I know I shouldn't do it. And I'll, I'll, I'll promise you I'll get better on it. I'll get better at it. Now, not everybody's gonna respond that way, by the way. Some people are gonna look at you and tell you what you can do with your feelings. But at least one time in my life, I just stood up and said something. I I just voiced it in a way. And and I would encourage you, I, I think in that moment, I wasn't mean, I wasn't you know, the weird Christian. I didn't walk in with my big Bible under my arm and go, the Word of God says in Exodus chapter 20, do not take the Lord's name in vain. I, don't do that. If you do that, don't tell people you go to church here, please. <laughs> but I do think there's something to be said for following the example of the apostles in Acts chapter 5. Let's, let's bring that verse back up. They called in the apostles, they had them flogged. Then They ordered them never again to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. Now, watch this. The apostles left the high council rejoicing that God had counted them worthy to suffer disgrace for the name of Jesus. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they continued to teach and preach this message. Jesus is the Messiah. Now, here's here's the take home here. I think it's important. I think we have to change our scoring system. Change your scoring system. Count your disgrace in the eyes of the world as His grace. Count what the world would say is a disgrace as His grace. Anytime that you're mocked for your faith, anytime that somebody says, you believe what? You just, man. Be kind, don't back down, but you count that disgrace as his grace. You count it as an opportunity to represent Christ in a dark and dying world that needs the love and the life and the light of Jesus. So you change your scoring system. You you look away from the, the temporary and the temporal to the eternal. And you understand that that you're operating on a new scorecard that's different than the way the world keeps score. That's what they did. They counted it. It's interesting. They rejoiced that God had counted them worthy to suffer disgrace. God thought enough of them to let them be thought little of. And that's what mattered. That's what they were after. The opinion of God. Look at Acts chapter six, verse one. But as the believers rapidly multiplied, there were rumblings of discontent. The Greek-speaking believers complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers, saying that their widows were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. So the 12 called a meeting of all the believers, and they said, we apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God, not running a food program. And so, brothers select seven men who are well-respected and are full of the spirit of God and wisdom. We will give them this responsibility. So even in that early church, even in a a congregation that was marked by the miracles and and graced with growth, you still had murmurings. You still had rumblings of discontent. You know why? Because it was made up of people. Wherever you have people, you will have these kind of scoring systems going on. And the Greek-speaking believers felt like their widows were being shortchanged. What I think is fascinating is the Bible doesn't say whether or not they actually were. The reality doesn't even really matter to the story. But the apostles addressed the situation. The apostles were so clear on their mission. They knew what God had called them to do They understood that the the food that they distributed to widows and the needy in the community, that was secondary to the mission of the word, of teaching and equipping the church to be the church. And so they said, listen, we we can find people that can do this. We can find people who are full of the spirit of God, full of wisdom. We want them doing that, but we're going to stay focused on what God's called us to do. And here's what they did. This is a fascinating principle. You create unity of spirit through the division of labor. You create a unity of spirit through the division of labor. You've got gifts and talents I don't have. I've got some that you don't have. And through it all, in God's Holy Spirit, the church does the work that the church is called to do. We become who we're supposed to become. Some of you right now, If I walked up to you out on the patio after this service and said, hey, I just want you to know, next week, I'm gonna have you preach the sermon. Now, some of you, not all, but some of you, some of you would be excited by that, oh, sweet. Some of you love to be, if you've ever seen kids who get a microphone for the first time, they run around on the stage, it's hysterical. Some of you though, if you thought you had to stand up here and preach next week in front of people, you would throw up on your shoes. And I understand, that's okay. But when I think about Mike Ward, our church's CFO, Jamie, our our controller, and how they manage the finances of our church and keep us moving in the right direction and healthy financially, I am so grateful for them. If I thought that my days would be consumed with putting the right numbers in the right columns and everything organized, I would run out the door with my hair on fire. That, That does not appeal to me in any way, shape, or form. You don't want me doing that. But we've divided the labor so that we maintain a unity of spirit. You do this in the home all the time. One of the things that I think is fascinating is to ask husbands and wives, who does what in the household? And what's been really funny to see is over time, how those roles have emerged and changed. I, I don't even think anything about doing laundry in our household. I, I do laundry at the drop of a hat. Julie's like, what are you doing? What are you missing? I'm like, it's cool. I got it. I grew up in a single parent home. I, I wash my clothes every night after basketball practice. Julie grew up in a home where her mom did that all the time. Her dad doesn't even know where the washing machine is. But in our household, in this generation, things have kind of evolved and kind of changed. The division of labor maintains a unity of spirit. If I wait, let's say that I ran out of something, I was like, hey, Julie, I need you to do some laundry for me. Can I just tell you that will not contribute to a spirit of unity in my home? Now, she doesn't mind doing it, but if I just sat around and waited on it, that ain't good. The apostles knew what they were doing here. It's incumbent upon every follower of Christ to know your gifts, know your role, and then fulfill that role within the fellowship, within the body. Now, Acts chapter six, Acts chapter seven goes on, and Acts chapter seven introduces us to the first recorded martyr for the cause of Christ. His name was Stephen. And and the Bible says that Stephen was full of the spirit and power of God. And as you read Acts chapter seven, he's called in before the Sanhedrin and he's questioned because he was preaching. And he uses the opportunity of his trial to again proclaim the good news of Jesus. And if you read Acts chapter seven, which I encourage you to do, you're going to see a lot of parallels between Stephen's trial sermon and Peter's Pentecost sermon. They they mirror one another. And as Stephen wraps up his testimony, he again proclaims the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised one of Israel. And he says that, that you hung on the cross, that you turned over to Rome. And the Sanhedrin loses their minds and they condemn him to death, to be stoned to death, to to stand there and have people throw rocks at him until he's dead on the ground. But this is what, the Bible records as Stephen's last words. Acts chapter seven, verse 59. As they stoned him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He fell to his knees shouting, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. And with that, he died. Saul, was one of the witnesses and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. Just as a little teaser, no no spoiler alert needed, Saul in this verse is the same man who becomes Paul. We're, We're gonna get there but just I wanted you to see that today. But I want to I focus on the words of Stephen. Do not hold this charge. Don't charge them with this sin. Don't hold this charge against them. It sounds remarkably like Jesus on the cross. Jesus who said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. It's gotta be an incredible moment for this church in Jerusalem to see one of their own, one of their leaders murdered, stoned to death in the streets of Jerusalem. But to hear him say, don't hold this charge against them. I think think the lesson from Stephen as we think about what, how, do we, how do we learn from this, what do we take from this, is actually the same message as Christ. Give the grace you've been given. The same grace that has forgiven and wiped the slate clean for every follower of Christ is the grace that we're to give other people. So when people hurt us, when people betray us, when people walk away, give them the same grace you've been given. Give them grace. Doesn't mean that they have asked for it. Doesn't mean that they necessarily have done anything to apologize or to make amends, but you just choose to do the same thing Jesus does. You choose to give the same grace you've been given. And I have to tell you this I, I know we're kind of spurring the horse to the barn here, but I just need you to understand this is hard for me. This is tough. I'm getting better at it, but it's taken work and years. And it takes the Holy Spirit of God. Because when somebody hurts me, when somebody wrongs me or, or, or does something, I, man. <laughs> Talk about scorecard. Anybody else keep score? I'm, I'm just curious. I'm like, man, but then I remember I deserve nothing of God's grace. Nothing. I, I have done nothing to earn the grace of God. That's why it's grace. Grace. It is undeserved, unearnable favor of God. And can, can we just, can we just, like, that is so inconvenient. That is so inconvenient. When you understand that God expects of us what he's given to us to, to extend the same grace we've been given. Stephen is stoned to death. Acts chapter eight, verse one says, a great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem, and all the believers, except the apostles, were scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria. But the believers who were scattered Preach the good news about Jesus wherever they went. I think as you look at the growing pains of the early church, you, you see, you see these patterns that play out in the people of God. As God cultivated Israel as his chosen people in the Old Testament, but also as he commissioned the church as his chosen people in the New Testament. You see these patterns play out in the people of God that parallel the patterns that play out in our personal relationships with God. And and you see here that the persecution that came on the church in Jerusalem that scattered believers to the four winds also led to the furthering of God's kingdom and so I think we've got we've to learn from that experience and say, okay, give God room to redeem our pain. Give God the room that he needs to do what he can do, and that is to redeem our growing pains. To take the stuff that we would do anything to avoid and turn it into something of value, something that is used for his glory and our good. Because that's who he is and that's what he does. Saul, who was standing there the day that Stephen was martyred, would eventually write this to the church at Corinth. He said, this is why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. For our present troubles, our current pains are small and won't last very long, yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now, rather we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. For the things we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever. It is only Jesus who produces that kind of perspective. When you come back and you, in, in the moment, it hurts. Growing pains are not fun. To this, this sermon, man, Ananias died. Stephen died. They were flogged and whipped. They were persecuted and scattered. but the perspective of the Holy Spirit of God to, to be able to pull back and to say, yes, it hurts in the moment. Yes, it's real. It's not denial. But it's pain with a purpose. It's pain that produces growth. It's pain that creates unity. It's that God redeems for his purposes. To redeem something means that you take something that has little value and exchange it for something that has great value. That's what Paul's saying here in 2 Corinthians. Take what you see right here, right now, what you feel right here, right now, but zoom out to the perspective of eternity and remember that in Christ, everything matters. Everything is used for good. I wanna ask you to bow your heads for just a brief moment. I don't know where you are today. I don't know what battles you walked in the door fighting. I don't know maybe what victories You've enjoyed. But I do know that in Christ, it is all used for His glory and our good. And if you're here today and you've never stepped into a relationship with Christ, we want to give you the opportunity to do that, to choose to follow Him. to join the family of faith where it's okay to not be okay. If that's you, then we want to invite you to pray just right where you are, whether you're in the room or you're online. Just talk to God silently and pray from your heart to his. Just say, Jesus, I need you. I need you And so I ask you to be the Lord of my life, to forgive me of every sin. Lord, I confess my sin holding nothing back in order to claim your forgiveness. And from this moment forward, I will follow you with everything I have. I will trust you more than I trust myself And I pray this prayer in your name. If you would just remain with your head bowed or, and eyes closed for a moment. But it's a sacred moment, because if you just prayed that prayer, this is the biggest moment of your life. And as a church, as a family, we wanna help with what comes next, because this is just the beginning. And so in just a second, we'll tell you kind of how to get that ball rolling in a way that works for you, at a pace that works for you. But before that, I'm going to ask you, if you would, if you just prayed that prayer, would you just raise your hand? Raise your hand and hold it up high over your head for just a second. But your hand in the air is a statement, physically, of the commitment spiritually that you just made. And for us as a church, there's nothing more important than that. And so we wanna help, and also we wanna celebrate that, we wanna honor that with you. And our family tradition around here is that you can go ahead and put your hands down, but we're gonna put our hands together and tell you welcome home. Welcome home.